If you want to find Matthew chapter 25 in your, in your Bibles, that's where we're going to be going today. This is like a continuation from what we've been talking about for the last few weeks. And it's about flowing with the Spirit and how we flow with the Spirit. And uh, I have to say, I thought Neil's talk last week was brilliant. I loved it. I, I was really like, wow, I, I wish I, you know, I hadn't seen that before, I hadn't seen that before, that's really good. And I, I think he did great, I think he did great. So as, as, as he sat there, we'll big him up, get him to go red in the face, he's, he's shaking his head already. Um, but yeah, it was, it was great, I enjoyed it. Thanks, Neil, thank you. Um, this morning, I, I'm going to talk about something, uh, the title of it is Fresh Oil. Fresh oil. And the reason I feel we need to do this is that we need to understand what Jesus thinks is actually success. What he thinks is success. Because one of the things that I believe that he is uh, shifting, and, and I, I, I've had this sense for several weeks now, that, this is, that he's going to be talking to us about this until we're transformed for the rest of this year. But one of the things that he's talking to us about is, you know, church isn't about bums on seats on a Sunday morning. And therefore, the measure of the success of a church is not how many people are on there on a Sunday morning. Nor is it how great the meeting was on that Sunday morning. Because if we all hang on to how great a meeting is on a Sunday morning, we'll have great meetings and we'll have not so great meetings. And sometimes that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit or God at all. It has to do with what sort of mood we're in when we turn up. And so, in some extent, if we measure meetings, we are actually just measuring our own mood changes. <laughs> And, and so, I want us to get away from, from that idea, because faith life wasn't born in order to fill bums on seats, because we, we were already part of a church that was doing that really well. Faith life was born to change this city, and we need to capture that idea again. You know, we, we, we are seeing God move in ways that we haven't seen or, or are getting larger than what we've seen before. And one of the reasons for that is that I believe that part of what we're to do going forward is to change the spiritual atmosphere in this city. And therefore, I think it was key that we were, were back at Strawberry Fair this year. Because, you know, you go, well, what, what does that do? Because these people, they travel in from all over the country, you pray for them, they get healed, and then they disappear to Middlesbrough or something like that. What good does it do? Well... What it does is it affects the spiritual atmosphere. And Jesus, when he sent the disciples out, and I'm going to talk about this probably over the summer, but I just wanted to touch on it this morning because of, of Logie's testimonies. When Jesus sends the, the 70 out, what he tells them to do is to put their peace, put their blessing on the place. And where that peace rests, that is where they're to minister. And 
when we, when we go, when we take our peace, when we take our blessing, when we, when we pray for people and respond to their felt needs, what's going on in their life, and we pray into that life, that actually affects things in the spiritual dimension. Because we aren't fighting to get people into the kingdom. What we're fighting is to get the blindness off their eyes and get the enemies affecting their life off. And we do that by blessing and we do it by prayer. So we do these things to change spiritual atmospheres. And along the way, we get, kind of get to have a lot of fun because we see miracles. So that's cool. But the, the, our aim is bigger than seeing miracles. Our aim is to redeem this city and our bigger aim is to redeem this region. Do, do you understand what I'm saying? So as long as we focus on, on Sunday morning, we'll miss it. However, Sunday morning is vital because Sunday morning is where we get together corporately and there's a corporate anointing that we carry that, that allows us to celebrate what God is doing, to charge ourselves up for what he's doing next time and to, to hear corporately what he's saying to us as a body. But, but let's not say that Sunday morning is the end of things. And we need to make that paradigm shift. And it's not a, it's not a story I'm going to get off because it's what God's saying to us. But I wanted to put that up front, uh, partly just to follow on from what Logie said. Now, so this morning, I want to talk about this subject of fresh oil. And I said a couple of weeks ago that the Holy Spirit's first agenda is for the first commandment to be in first place in his church. See, the Holy Spirit does lots of things, but his first agenda is for the first commandment to be in first place in the church. And, and we talked about how he does that by baptizing us in his love. He shows us his love and he imparts to us love so we love him back with all our heart, all our strength, all our mind, all our body. And, and that's, that's what the Holy Spirit is about more than anything else. And we, and we can get sidetracked because... Because we're fickle, we get sidetracked by all the exciting gifts and we get hung up on what gift have I got, what gift have you got, and how do I minister, who does, who does it? But the Holy Spirit's first agenda in the church is love. Yeah. To love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength, all our soul, because he does that for us. And the incredible thing is that God loves you with all his heart all his strength, all his mind, all his soul. The creator of a billion galaxies loves you with all his strength. How amazing is that? How cool is that? And I'm going like, God, I can't even get round my head around the creator of a little planet Earth, let alone hundred, you know, billions of galaxies. How do you get your head around that? Well, I can't. But God says this. He says, I've got an equation and it works like this. I will count your all equal to my all. So it's not the size of the all. The size of God's all is huge, massive, enormous. Billion galaxies, huge strength. My all is, depending on how I get out of bed, variable. But tiny in comparison. And, and God says, it's not the size. It's the fact of the all that I'm after. I'm after all of you because I'm giving you all of me. And, and when I make that, that paradigm shift in my head, it changes so much. It changes the way I see ministry. It changes the way I see life. It changes the way I see relationship. It changes the way I go about Bible study. It changes the way I go about prayer. It changes so much. 
Because our goal is to love him. Now, I've got some questions for you this morning just to sort of move us into the next stage of what I'm talking about. And it's, it's poignant in some ways because so many greats, great people of my lifetime have died this year, including Muhammad Ali yesterday. Just phenomenal people, like not, not just average. These are, these are people who affected the world in their own chosen fields. And so, I, th this is my question. I'm going to ask you some questions. And you, I, you don't have to give me answers. You don't have to shout out. You don't have to embarrass yourself. Is that a good deal? Yeah. So, my first question is this. And just have a think about it. How long do you think you're going to live? Okay, good biblical answer. How long do you think you're going to live? Realistically, how long? Muhammad Ali lived till he was 74. Prince lived till he was 57. How, how long are you going to live? You know, Prince got in a lift and died. He wasn't expecting it. How long are you going to live? Now, my second question is this. Assuming you've come up with a length of time you're going to live for, and hopefully if you're younger than me, it's longer than me. But assuming you've come up with a length of time, what is your life going to look like in that time period? What do you want your life to look like in that time period? And a related question is this. What do you want to have achieved in that time period? You know, at the start of the year, I did this series called Resolution, and, and the question is, here's the big question, but here's an even bigger question. This is my bigger question, having because I'm assuming you've all got like little maybe not fully worked out answers to those questions, but you've all been like going, hmm, yeah, I've, I've got an idea. Here's my, my bigger and better question. How are you going to measure if you've succeeded in what you, like, you wanted your life to look like and what you were going to achieve? How are you going to measure success in your life? So God's asking me all these questions, and then something weird happened. And I'm going to ask you the fifth question. I'm going to tell you what the weird thing was. It was a God-weird thing, okay? Here's the fifth question. What do you think it's going to feel like to die? What's it going to feel like to die? You've all gone quiet on that one. You had all great success plans for the rest of your life, and now I'm focusing on that. And the reason for that is I was working through these questions and thinking about that for for myself, and God, I actually had one of those, those moments with God where he showed me what it felt like to die, about what it's like taking your last breath. And I don't want to be found in that moment without him. That's the point. Because when, when you, because you don't want to die, there's something in us that struggles not to die, even though when we know it's our time. We fight it. And, and I was, in, in this thing that happened, I was 
you know, just straining to get another breath. I knew I was dying, but I was straining to just get one more breath. And when I die, I don't want to be found without God. But I don't, also don't want to be found having wasted my life on stuff that didn't matter. Do you, do you get the point? You see, God doesn't think like us. We, we think, even if we're going, well, I'm going to live till 120 because I know what it says in the Old Testament about how long we're supposed to live. Okay, so let's say we're going to live to 120. I know that that's a completely different way to what God thinks. Whatever number we put on it, it's a completely different way. Because God inhabits a different reality to us. However, we also inhabit that reality, but we don't see it. And therefore, we don't plan our lives according to this reality that we live in. We think we've got this defined time scale of 40, 50, 60, 70 years, 80 years, 90 years, whatever. Whatever our defined time scale is, that's what we think and how we think. But God doesn't think like that because he knows that the reality we live in is the same reality he lives in, and it's called eternity. See, Isaiah 57 uh, Verse 11 says um, that God inhabits a place. He lives in a place. And we go, well, I know God lives in a place. He lives in heaven. Well, actually, the Bible says that, that the reality that God lives in is eternity. Can we, can we have that verse up, Joanna? 57.15. Sorry. The next verse is verse 11. For thus says the high and lofty one, who inhabits eternity whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones, the humble ones. So God's saying, I'm looking from eternity and what I'm doing there, because you live in this reality too called eternity, is I'm trying to give you my life. I'm trying, I'm looking for humble people who will carry my life into this world. Are, are you with it? See, is it I, I think of it as a bit like, have you ever heard the phrase, like, when it's all over, it all goes back in the box? You, you see, what, look, we've got this croquet set that we, we, we were just blessed with a few years ago. And, and at the end of the summer, however good the games were, and however, however aggressive you want to be, croquet is a really aggressive game, you know, bizarrely. <laughs> however aggressive you want to be, at the end of the day, it all gets, goes back in the box and gets packed away. You know, whatever the game was, whether you won, lost, drew, or whatever, it all goes back in the box. And God said, I need you to start looking at things, because there's another reality you live in beyond those defined years, and it's called eternity. And I'm living there, and I'm looking for humble people to share that with and give them my life. And so, um, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11 says this, he's made everything beautiful in its time and he's put eternity into their hearts. Some translations say the hearts of men. There, however you narrowed that down to how long you were going to live, there's something in you that says there's something more. That, that there's an eternity that's been placed in your heart and, and it's those moments, like those brief moments you get when you're not at work and you're not busy and you're not watching TV and you're not on your, your, your iPad or your laptop. Those brief moments when you look up the skies and you look at the stars or the sun or the birds or the trees or whatever, you know you're part of something bigger. 
And that's, that's because that's placed in your heart. There's a, there's a longing in you that says, there is a reality beyond what I see. There's a reality called eternity that I am part of. And the enemy's plan is to stop us thinking like that, to, to dull that down, to dull that sense down that the Holy Spirit's planted in there for, for, for us from birth, to stop us actually living in the fullness of what God has for us, that, 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 that life he wants to pour out. And what, what is this eternity? What is this eternal life? Where, when does it start? Well, Jesus said this in uh, John 17, verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, that's know God, the only true God, and know Jesus Christ whom he sent. So the way God defines this reality is not about achievement. He defines this reality in terms of knowing him. And he's saying... When, when I put eternity in your heart, it was to draw out from you this sense of wanting to know me. And Jesus is saying that, and, he's, and it, so it starts right here and now. You're living in that eternity. You don't wait till you die to go into eternity. You're living in eternity right now. So you have all the rights, the authority, the blessings, everything available to you of eternity. But the key principle is that is that they get released because we know God and we know Jesus. So it's about knowing. It's about knowing. Now, why do I say that? I say that because um, I have seen so many Christians over my life, particularly young Christians, and they, they give their lives to Christ. They have a radical encounter with God and, and they, they go off like firecrackers. They're, they're full of fire and passion and they love God and they care about God and, and they're telling everybody else about God. And yet I've seen that over time that fade. And Jesus is saying it doesn't have to be like that. But, but for it not to be like that, you've got to know what matters. And the reason it becomes like that is because you're doing and living your life according to what doesn't matter because it doesn't release that life that's coming from eternity to let you live in that place of, of, of joy and energy and life and passion and on fire because you have a burning love for, to give all of you because he's given you all of him. And... And that's, when we want to flow in the Holy Spirit, we've got to connect to that sort of reality. Because flowing in the Holy Spirit re requires us to connect to the Holy Spirit. And he inhabits eternity. And he thinks eternity. Whereas we think this little defined period of time. Now, because we, we, I've seen that, I just want to make a few comments about why I, I think that Christians do go through that, like, fading. Or the, the fire goes. Or they get stuck in the mundaneness of life or the routine of life. Or they can be doing exactly the same things as they were five years ago, but they're going, I'm fed up of this. Let's do something else. And, and that's because that heart connection is gone. They've started to operate in a different way. And... Let me, let me just make some really bold statements. I, I, I'm prepared to take flat later, but I'm not going to answer them now. 
Okay? Um, the first one's this, that if you... Um, how can I put it? If you work to get Jesus' approval, you will burn out. If what you're doing is to get Jesus' approval or to please Jesus because you think that's what he requires, you will burn out. If, you are doing, if, if whatever you do for God, if you're doing it out of your own strength, you will burn out and most likely you will get ill too because it's you and not him. But the, 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 the clever thing is, the enemy has you thinking it's still him because you want to please him, but you're doing it from you. Here's, a, here's another one. If you want to get affirmation from people, so if you want other people to go, wow, you're doing great, fantastic for God, what an amazing ministry you've got, what an amazing uh, preacher you are, what an amazing worship leader you are, whatever, whatever amazing PowerPoint person you are, or kids leader, or car park, uh, happy, smiley person who makes it all worthwhile, whatever you are, if you do that to get affirmation from people, and, and that's, that's what you want, you will burn out. Yeah. You will. You'll burn out. You'll fade, and you'll just get stuck. I remember starting out my career, and this is, I'm on my introductory course. So we went on for a three-week introductory course, and we learned all about bookkeeping and double entry, and we got to meet, you know, I'm, I'm a little... 20, what, old, 22-year-old nobody. And at the, they have this dinner at the end and the partners turn up of the, these big consulting firms. And they turn up and you get put on a table with, with the partners. And I, I'm sat on this table like, oh, wow, I'm on a table with a partner. Oh. No, I can't imagine anybody ever thought like that about me when I was a partner, but <laughs> perhaps times had changed. And... Somebody made this comment, and it really stuck with me, because I didn't believe it at the time, but I saw it was absolutely true. And because this guy said, what do you want, what, what's your, where do you want to be in 10 years' time? And everybody on the table said, I want to be a partner in this firm, because that's the right answer, isn't it? And he said, well, let me tell you this. That could be the worst thing that happens to you. Because... One of the biggest challenges we all face as partners is the moment we make partner, we've fulfilled our goal. And we get there and we go, is that it? Is that it? And I, I saw that pattern of, of many, many of my partners really struggling to give any meaning to their life and because of that, they were thrashing out all over the place, buying themselves Ferraris, getting divorced, getting remarried, going on exotic holidays, coming back, getting divorced again, buying another Ferrari. And you go, is that it? You see, success in those terms can actually be really costly. Because that's not what it's about. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't aspire to be successful in those terms, but that's not the measure of success. 
Do you see what I mean? If we're going to change this city and, and this area and all sorts of things, it's going to require a lot of us to be successful in our places, in the NHS, in government, in education, in, in accountancy even, in wherever. It's going to require that to, for us to play our part in the workplace, in the coffee machine, doing jobs for the glory of God. But that's not our measure of success. So what is the measure of success? Well, let, let's see what Jesus says. Because he's good. And, and I'll just say, when I, this in my Bible, this is in red. So red words win. We know that, don't we? If you've got any doubts about what's right and wrong, red words win. You can get all messed up with theology, but the bottom line is Jesus is perfect theology and red words always win. Anything contradicts red words, you've got a misunderstanding of what the other thing said. Red words win. So these are red words. And Jesus is telling this story just before he goes to the cross and he's getting his disciples ready and he's telling them what's important. And so it sticks, he tells them some stories. And this is the one called the story or the parable of the ten virgins. This is what he says, that the kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were wise and five of them were foolish. So set off with ten, five wise, five foolish. Those who were foolish, so this is the definition of, this is, he's talking about the foolish ones now. Those who were foolish took their lamps and they didn't take any oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose, trimmed the lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there shouldn't be enough for us and you, but go to those who sell and buy some oil for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. You don't want to be the other side of that door. Afterward, the other virgins came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and he said, and it's a weird, strange answer, until you understand what he's saying. He said, assuredly, I say to you, I don't know who you are. I don't know you. Watch, and then he says this, this is his summary. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Okay, so how do we, we understand this and how do we, we get to, to grips with what he's saying here? I think that I, I, was, I was really studying this because I've actually preached on this two or three times over the life of Faith Life. I think the first time we were in Mayfield, and, which is one of our previous venues. And so... I came to it and, and I said, God, I, what are you trying to show me? Why am I reading this today? And he, and he said, okay, well, let's have a look at what happens in this story. And let's start by saying, what, what do the wise and the foolish have in common? Now, I, I think it just uh, might be a bit different from Paul because he looks very lonely there. But if you're anywhere near anybody, turn them to them now and say, you don't want to be the fool. Right, so have you got that? You don't want to be the fool. You don't want to be foolish, do you? Because you're going to get the door slammed. You don't want to be foolish. You miss the party. Okay, so what, what's, what's the difference here? Now, Jesus is going to actually say some quite hard things. 
Now remember, salvation is about grace and us believing what Jesus has done for us. There isn't any other requirement. But Jesus is going to nail some things here about work and how it can actually pull you away from what really matters, which is knowing him. Remember, this is eternal life, that you would know me. So what does he say? Well, the first thing is that these are all virgins. There's ten of them. They're all virgins. What, what does virgins mean? It means that they're all redeemed. So these are believers. We're dealing with believers here, people who've had a genuine relationship with God. They, they're gonna, after all, they're going to marry the bridegroom when he comes back. So they're, they're, they're redeemed people. They're, they're people who are in church, Christians, uh, believers, and they're all at some time sold out for God. They're going to marry this bridegroom. He's their heart's desire. So they're all virgins. Secondly, these might seem like basic points. Secondly, they've all got lamps. Yeah, they've all got lamps. Ten lamps. Nobody is without a lamp. So what's a lamp? Well, in biblical terms, so this is where I start getting off my rabbit warrens, and I start discovering something. And in the, in the Bible, a lamp represents ministry. Remember in Revelation, they've got the seven lampstands for the seven churches. Lamps seem to associate with light, bringing light, ministries, things that we do for God. And so they've all got a ministry. They're all doing something for Jesus, the bridegroom. They're all doing something for him. And they've all got lamps. So that means they have the capacity to hold oil and to use oil. Everybody in the story, has the same capacity. There's no like, oh, I missed out on that one. Everybody has the same capacity. Now, the third thing they all have in common is this, that, that at, at one time, they all, all had a really close connection to the bridegroom. Would you agree? They all set off the same. And, and the point is that it's hard to keep oil in your lamp in the midst of shining. It's hard to keep oil in your lamp in the midst of shining. There's something, even if we set out as, as like that firecracker believer, there's something that is hard to stay at that place. And, you know, we've all seen it in our own lives, haven't we? Like, and, and it's so good when we get back in that place. But it, it's something that, that he's had, and, and that's because there's something about the burning, the shining, that helps you forget to fill up the oil. Something about the burning and the shining, and you forget to fill up the oil. Yeah. And that's why people get in real messes in their ministries and in their lives, because they do set off right before God, wanting to do things for God, but they start burning on empty fumes. Because they forget about filling up with the oil. Now let me put it this way, because it would be easy at this point to go, well, I'm not in ministry. That's Mark's job. You know, or Cheryl's job. <coughs> let me put it this way. We have a weird idea about ministry. Yeah. And our weird idea about ministry that that basically leads us down that path to how many bums on seats have we got on a Sunday morning and how great was the service, is how well did Mark do today? How well did Sarah do today? How well did so-and-so do today? Was it a great service? Wasn't it a great service? Because we think 
it's Mark's job to minister. We think it's Cheryl's job to minister, Sarah's job to minister, or whoever else is on that morning. And we go, well, I'm not in ministry, so I'll make a decision on, on faith life and whether I want to be part of this or not, to how I felt about how those guys did that morning. And, and that's a really, really good tactic of the enemy because he's got us out of this reality called eternity and he's got us looking on the basis of what we do. And let me, let me say this because I'm going to talk about this at length later over the summer, but there's a shift we need to make. Let me tell you this. I am, I am the one person in this room who is not in ministry. You guys are all in ministry. I'm not. I'm sent to equip you for ministry. That's my job. If anybody's not in ministry, it's me. Because I'm an equipper for you to minister. Because ministry, if you're a Christian, who's a Christian all the time? Yeah? You're a Christian all the time. Therefore, you're in ministry all the time. Jesus doesn't make that distinction. You're on the mission of the kingdom all the time. And so you don't have that, well, ministry is a Sunday morning thing, or Mark does that. Actually, my job is to try and shift some of this rubbish that we've accumulated in, in church to get you to realize that I'm equipping you to do ministry. Yeah. And ministry is your life. Ministry is the way we live. It's, it's the light that we shine wherever we are. It's 24-7. Sunday mornings, we celebrate the results of our ministry. Yeah. This isn't ministry. Do, do you get it? Yeah. Right, okay. It's, that, that's a big shift, and I'm going to come back to that at length over the summer. Because flow gets followed by a series called Shift. Okay? So there's going to be a shift later on. There's always a shift coming, isn't there? So it's going to be later on. <laughs> right. So... When we're running around trying to grow things, trying to build things, trying to do things, we burn oil. Now, what's oil? The oil is the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of God. It's the anointing of God. It's God's life in us. So we're burning that. And so God's plan is we know him, so he keeps filling us from his place called eternity. And he does that when we are open before him and humble before him to receive it and go, I can't do this. I'm running on fumes. Now, let me say this, because this, the, the whole topic we're talking about at the moment is flowing with the Holy Spirit. You cannot flow with the Holy Spirit if you do not spend time with the Holy Spirit. You can't. You cannot flow with the Holy Spirit if you do not spend time with the Holy Spirit. Because you don't know his ways. So all you're left with is your ways. You see, it's not just about trying to latch on to a promise and trying to believe it or not believe it. It's about understanding God's ways. How does he create faith in you? How does the spirit flow in the meeting? How do you catch that in worship? How do you catch that in ministry? How do you see what the Holy Spirit's doing when you're praying for somebody? We've got to know his ways. 
We've got to know his ways as what to do at the coffee machine in, in the office tomorrow morning. We've got to know what to do when we're sat at a desk doing an exam. We've got to know the Holy Spirit's ways so we can do it with his power instead of ours. So the only way we can flow with the Holy Spirit is to know the Holy Spirit. Is this making sense? So something had gone wrong with some of these virgins at that point. They were, they, 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 they were running out of oil because they weren't flowing with the Holy Spirit because they didn't know the Holy Spirit or they didn't know the bridegroom. They didn't know his ways. What's really sad is they thought they were doing great. The foolish virgins thought they were doing great. They were busy. They were doing stuff, and it was good stuff, but they had no oil. Now, third, fourth thing that's in common, everybody sleeps. They all go to sleep. Now, sleep in this context isn't a negative. Okay, Sleep in this context is about the routine and the mundaneness of life. Time passes. You can't stop time passing, and a lot of your time is mundane. It's not hyper, hyper exciting. Fingers that are due amputation don't fuse together every day. Because you're kind of hoping you're not like severing them in the first place. So it's not all up on that plane. We're not seeing that all the time. Most of our life is sustaining our relationship and knowing the flow of the Spirit in the mundaneness, in the routine, in the... Wasn't work awful today feeling. That's, that's what we do. And, and you, you guys been in ministry, it's sustaining that in the routine and the mundaneness of ministry. Now, what a lot of people do is they don't. They just flit from here to there to the next place to the next place to the next opportunity because they haven't understood that God works in power through the mundaneness. And the focus is to keep your heart connection with the Spirit, not to live the spectacular life every minute of the day. Because nobody can do that. They might give you the impression they do that on Facebook, but guys... People on Facebook aren't real people. Yeah. i just like to tell you that. They're not real people. They're cardboard cutouts of real people that tell you all the good stuff, except when they want a bit of sympathy, and then they tell you all the bad stuff. <laughs> There's no middle bit. People on Facebook are not real. Now, the point that Jesus is talking about here is... It's what we do in that mundaneness, in that routine, in that delay, when we haven't seen what we wanted to see. What do we do that defines wisdom and folly? It defines success. It's what you do in that place, in the sleep, that defines wisdom, that defines folly. Now, this is really important. Remember I said the red words win? So that means... The person who is defining here what is wise and what is foolish is actually the person, Jesus, the Jewish man, the guy on the throne, the man saying this is Jesus, and he is going to evaluate your life on this basis. 
The man who's going to do mark the exam, the man who's going to evaluate your life, is going to evaluate it on the basis of we, he's calling, were you wise or were you foolish? It's the same man saying it. So therefore, this is really important that we get this. And that will help us shift to the place that God wants us to be and see much more impact through our lives because we're doing it in his flow, his power, his strength and not our own. Now, the point of separation comes and it comes with the fifth thing that is common to everybody. There's this thing called the midnight cry. The cry goes out, the bridegroom's on his way back. You can call that revival if you want. You could call that a move of God. You could call that the second coming. Whatever. It's a crunch point. And the really interesting thing I find about this crunch point is it happens in the darkest moment. It happens at midnight. It happens in the darkness. When everything seems that it's at its worst, it gets to be its best. And, and, and the result of that is they all go... All ten of them go, whoa, wake, go mad, run around, like headless chickens, oh, and, and it's just chaos because it wasn't expected. We got used to that mundaneness because we were, we, we were living as if we'd forgot that the bridegroom was coming back. We'd forgot that God was going to move. We'd forgot that there was going to be revival that changes this nation. We forgot that our mission was to redeem this city. Our mission is to redeem this region. Your mission is to redeem your workplace and redeem your neighborhood. We forgot that. And all of a sudden, something happens, and we go, oh, the world's terrible, and I can't cope, and my job, I just need to survive till tomorrow in my job, and it's awful, and I'm burnt out, and I'm tired, and I'm tired. And then it comes, this Midnight cry, and it's a wake-up. And Jesus says that when that defining moment happened, there was a problem that shows the foolishness that had taken place before that moment. You see, a move of God's only for those who want it and are ready for it. It isn't for those who think it's an optional extra. And it isn't for those who have done lots of good work, but burnt on the fumes. And this is what Jesus says. Problem number one, there's three problems. Problem number one is obvious. No oil. And, and, and the ones, the foolish ones who didn't have any oil hadn't realised the importance of it. They didn't think it was that important. They, they were just busy using it up. They didn't, didn't realise it was that important. You see, they'd been busy with their lamps and they'd been doing their ministries and doing their jobs and, and, and working away and networking and growing and building and creating and they've done it all themselves. And they didn't realize that Jesus thinks that's foolish. He says that's foolish. Because when it comes down, you haven't got the oil. And eternal life's about knowing me. It's about the oil. It's about the relationship. 
You see, if you're not fueled, if you're not running on heart connection with Jesus, on encounter with Jesus, on experiencing the Holy Spirit, on relating to the Holy Spirit, on knowing him, knowing his ways, Jesus says, you're foolish. Turn to the person next to you and say, you don't want to be foolish. Do that again. You don't want to be foolish. Now tell them you need to pay attention to this. You see, maybe the assignment that God's given you is in your workplace. Have you ever thought that, that it's not in church? There are no assignments in here except to commit you, commi- equip you for your assignment. Are you starting to get this? There's no assignment in this place except to equip you for your assignment and, and for us to encounter God, to experience God and to know how to do that corporately so we draw on him and, 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 and meet him and get to know him. So it might be that your assignment is in your neighbourhood or or in government, or in healthcare, or education, or music, or, or films, or whatever. But the point is this, that if you become more preoccupied with your assignment than you do with connecting with the Holy Spirit, Jesus says you're foolish. And that's the problem, because for all of us who, who do lead churches and, and, and things... We so run on fumes because we become preoccupied with building the assignment than we do with connecting with the Holy Spirit. And you can't connect with the Holy Spirit if you don't know the ways of the Holy Spirit. We can say we're blue in the face, that we, we, the, the Spirit was here and, and we, we walk in his presence and, and we do all this, but if we do, there's evidence Evidence in our lives and evidence in what is taking place around us. Because the Holy Spirit is a miracle worker. The Holy Spirit is a doer of supernatural things. The Holy Spirit's presence can be felt. Have you ever been in in worship and people go, oh, the presence of God's here, and you go, I'm not feeling anything and nobody else is feeling anything. Except we're excited. Or we're stirred. But actually... Physically, you can feel the Holy Spirit. You can. The presence of God is tangible, and it invades from eternity into this realm. Now, so what do we do about that as a church? Well, I just want to trail a couple of things, because you probably... If you were at the meeting, was it two weeks ago, three weeks ago, on the Monday, I believe God really clearly spoke to us when we got together about what he said were the qualities that we needed. Humility, unity. Um, But there was something we had to do, and it was this word about Nehemiah came through, about building the walls of the city. Seeing the purpose that we were called for. So you then say, right, okay, well, what does that look like? How do we affect things around us? Now, I've trailed a couple of things on Facebook this week. Well, one the previous week. One called the filling station. 
Anybody worked out what the filling station is yet? Some people are getting closer. I gave them a verse, and Joyce says it's now really, really obvious. But nobody's guessed it, so it can't have been that obvious. Even though the verse was, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now, the other thing that I've trailed is about nation changes. It's not going to be called nation changes. We're going to come up with a different name because actually it's on a scale that we weren't, haven't uh, done in the past. We've had this thing called nation changes, but it's been very limited, very narrowed down. And actually it's going to, what God's put on our hearts is much bigger. Now let me explain these to you and how that, that contextualizes in what I'm talking about. Because it's no good me just like wittering away if I don't give you a context so you can understand it, is it? So I'm going to use this context. This isn't all. Um, by the way, there's a third thing that God's put on our hearts, which I'll, I'll be putting teasers out from. It's called Faith Life Mobile. Okay? Faith Life Mobile. Now, that's easy to get, isn't it? It, it, it moves. Okay, mobile things move. There's a clue. When I put the teasers out, they move. It moves. Right. So nation changes. When we've done, we've done this thing called nation change in the past where we've, we've discipled a few students and we, we partnered with another organization and it was about raising people up and it became, um, it, it lost its original purpose because it became about a negative. It became about what we don't like as Christians and let's campaign against it. Not, not from us, but from those we were partnering with. And it, and it lost its way because it, it, it began to dominate our student work instead of us realising that it was our job to equip those that God had already put the seed into to do this. So we tried to put the seed into everybody and it doesn't work. The seed's already there. God already has identified people from birth who are going to change this nation. Isn't that good? Yeah. They're there. They're already. We don't have to do anything. We only have to find them. And so we're going we're gonna to bolt this on at the side of faith life. It's not, it's not the whole of faith life. It's something that we, 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 we're fully involved in and support. But... Guys, it's time to release ministries instead of trying to make everything faith life. Yeah. We, we all are called to do different things. God puts stuff in us from birth. And so the idea behind Nation Changes is to raise up young people who God has already put seeds in that they are change agents for society, for cities, for governments, for business, for whatever area, for films, for art, for uh, music, whatever, and help them know how to sustain that. Okay, so we're not training them to campaign. What we're going to train them to do is know how to live that without losing that connection from God. Does that make sense? So it's about identity. It's about drawing on the, the, the strength of God in us. It's about realizing and identifying the gifts he's put in us. It's about tools to enable us to see the dreams he's put in our heart and put a context on it. And I don't, I don't need to, we, we don't need to go out and invent that because God's already put people within us like Neil who, who already have that ready-made because their DNA is wired like that. Do you see? But the point is that we, 
the key is to enable people to sustain. Because I remember that when, the minute I walked through that door, you know, on my first three weeks, I would, day one, I walked into that, that training and I thought I, was, I would be untouched and I was on fire for God. I was. I just got out of university. I discovered spirit. I was seeing healings. I was on fire for God. And within six months, my goals had become to make partner. And that fire had got dulled down. Corporate culture, busyness, life has a way of taking away from you your connection with God. And so we need to help and, and know how to sustain that in whatever we're doing. So nation change is just one aspect of what, 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 we, what we can do. There's so many. And you've all got different things that you can do. Faith Life Mobile is going to mobilize a lot of you. So I'll put that teaser out there. Now, how do we do that? Well, we do that because corporately we meet together and we learn and we understand how to draw on the Holy Spirit, how to get full of the Holy Spirit, how to have the Holy Spirit imparted, etc., etc. Now, if we go off and we hair off doing lots of things, then the issue becomes we will burn out and run on fumes. So therefore, we need to have something that enables us to get full of the Holy Spirit and to fill us up so we run on the oil and not the fumes. Hence the filling station. The filling station, we're just going to do it for whoever wants to come and we're going to start, we'll trial it over the summer. I haven't got a particular format and you'll see why. We'll trial it over the summer and basically, we're going to get together We'll do a bit of worship, we'll pray over each other, we'll lay hands on each other, we'll ask the Holy Spirit to turn up, and the idea is at the end of the night, we walk out the door, or fall out the door, or crawl out of the door, full of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Full of the Holy Spirit, that's it, filling station. You go to a filling station because you're empty, and you fill up. So when I put the teaser out tomorrow, you'll all be able to answer it, won't you, and reply on Facebook. I know what it is, and you'll appear really clever. But that's what it is. Okay, where am I going with this? Right, problem number two. So problem number one, no oil and didn't see the importance of it. Problem number two, you can't borrow somebody else's oil. Sadly, I can't do this for you. Faith life can't do this for you. Your husband of your wife can't do this for you. Your parents can't do this for you. Nobody can do this for you. You can't borrow oil off somebody else. You have to learn and know how to get your own. Problem number three. So the panic sets in. Jesus is coming back. They try to borrow it, can't borrow it. They go out to buy it. When you look at the, the Greek, they have a period of time in which they can buy it. I've not seen this before, by the way. They have a period of time in which they can buy it. It's not, it's not that the, the other, the five clever virgins, or the wise ones, sent them out on a, on a useless mission. They have the ability to get it. Unfortunately, they have run on fumes so long, and without that heart connection they don't know where to buy it anymore. They have time to go and buy it, but they don't know how to buy it. 
because they forgot. It's become so long that they forgot where they get the fresh oil from. And so they don't know where to go. And, and, and it's so sad that in ministry, and forget all the paradigm shift, in ministry or in work or whatever, we can be like that. We can go so long without the Holy Spirit that we get to the point where we just even don't even know where to buy him. That's, that's why it's so dangerous when, when we run churches on the basis of what we can do instead of what the Holy Spirit can do. Do you understand this? That should get a big cheer. When we, we want churches where we run on the basis of what the Holy Spirit can do. Amen? Okay, give him a big cheer. Because yeah. like he deserves it. That wasn't a very big cheer. Try again. Big cheer. I'm coming to the big ending on my talk now. So give him a big cheer again. Yeah. All right. Okay. Right. So where do you buy oil? That's the whole point, isn't it? Jesus isn't saying this to depress you and say, guys, you really tried hard. You did great. You were really busy, but it doesn't count for anything. He's not doing it for that purpose. He's doing it so the disciples know they've got to buy oil and keep on buying oil. Where do, you, where do you get it? You know, in, um, in uh, Revelation, when one of, the, one of the churches that's really gone off the rails, Jesus counsels them to buy oil. Go and get oil. It'll put you back on the right track. Because this is all about knowing me, connecting to me. And this is eternal life. And that's the measure of success. You see... We can all want like something that's amazingly spectacular result of ministry. I built a church of 20,000. I did this. I don't want to build a church of 20,000. I want to change a region because that's what Jesus wants. And I think we can do that with a church of 150 because that's a whole lot more than Jesus started with. So we must be able to do it. The Holy Spirit's done this thing before. He started with 12. He changed, an, he changed the entire Roman Empire in a couple of hundred years. So what can he do with 150? Why do you need 20,000? Are, are you getting this? So all we have to do is know where to buy oil. And then as we burn oil, we get more oil. Where do you buy oil? You buy oil face to face with God. You buy oil in worship. When, when you pour out your heart to him and you connect with him in worship, you buy oil in prayer where you spend time with God and, and, and it's not just one way, this is my list of demands for you, God, this week. Now, please come because you promised them. God ain't going to do that. However much you go, well, I believe that promise, you're asking for your own reasons. It's your list of demands. He does it because he loves you. And, and he wants you to come to him and, and share your life with him. We buy oil in the quiet place, in the secret place. We buy oil when we respond and, and we have land, hands laid on us. By impartation, he buys us oil. There's a filling that comes. We buy oil by desiring him. We buy oil when we, we get in the word and see it as a way of knowing him, not as a way of accumulating information. You know, I think it's tragic that I, I know the word. I've studied the word for, for, for all my Christian life. I can ream off verses after verses, theologies after theology. I can argue you left, right, and center. But it's pointless if I don't know him. 
I could have the brain the size of the planet full of theology information, and I did have for 20 years of my life. And it did me no good because I burnt out in my Christian walk. And I had to go, I had to drive across England and go to a room in Sunderland and fall flat on my face in the presence of God to find out what I, where I got wrong. Because it's about knowing him. It's about buying oil. You see this? So, I'd love to be able to, I, I know we've done this for several weeks now, I'd love to be able to like do an altar call and line you all up and just that's it, we've got it. It doesn't work like that. This, this isn't that sort of sermon. It's, it's not that sort of sermon. It's about, I have to do this. It's a life. It's a life of knowing him, of loving him. The number one priority of the Holy Spirit is that we love God. And when we love God, it, it, he fills us with his oil, fresh oil, every day. There's no, no magic about it. It's just fresh oil every day. And yeah, we burn and we shine and we do all our stuff and we're busy and, 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 and life's mundane, but it's fresh oil every day. And it, and it keeps that passion. Amen.